Nice. So um, this morning we're going to continue a series that we started last week um, called You've Got This. And the heart of the series is really looking at those characteristics and traits that we as individuals and even as a church that we believe are essential to living out the life that God has called us to live. That um, even in the midst of that, um, there is a bit of like, I just want to go run a couple of laps with that because it's so like just, man, motivating. That there are typically these characteristics and traits are things that maybe right now we don't have in our lives. Um, last week we looked at grit and how um, grit is something that isn't just to be admired from a distance, but it's actually we're, we're called by God to, to foster it in our lives. And if you missed that series, I would encourage you to check it out last week. We fixed an issue with our podcast, so like all our video and audio now syncing um, with our app. And so you can go back and listen to any message or watch any service through our app. And it really was just this how to, to foster more grit in our lives. And today we're going to kind of pivot and unpack another characteristic or trait that I think is pretty essential for life that most of us, um, quite honestly, it's one of those things in the distant that we're not really sure how to foster. Um, I'm going to start by just a couple weeks ago, I was in the city and had a meeting in Cambridge and I was running short on time and wasn't sure if I was going to be able to make it with, um, with the tea. And so um, I called an Uber and uh, my Uber driver comes pulling up and I open the door, and um, this guy's got a system. You know what I'm talking about? Like one of those like large speakers. Like it's not just to like listen to music, but your kidneys need to vibrate alongside of the music, like that kind of system. And so I sit down in the back seat, and it's like Eminem, and it's like you've only got one. You know? I'm like, wow, okay, this is. And he's like, hey man. I'm like, hey. And he's like, hey, uh, do you have an iPhone? I said, yeah, I have an iPhone. He's like, would you like to charge it? I'm like, sweet, man. This guy's like thinking through all the details, you know. So I hand him my iPhone and he goes to plug it in and we go from Eminem and he kind of turns around. Is that yours? I was like, yeah, that's mine. And then he looks back. Were you just walking around town listening to this? Yeah. It's awesome. It's a Hamilton soundtrack. So you walked around town listening to this. It's like, yeah, this song, it's about King George finding out George Washington is stepping down from the presidency. Oh, okay. All right, let's go on. So he starts kind of driving. And this is like really awkward interchange where this like private music that I thought no one knew. I was walking around Boston Commons jamming out to the Hamilton soundtrack. Um, is all of a sudden on display, not just to me and this man who's now really concerned about me being in his car, but now to everyone within like a block of Boylston Street because he has a system. And they're like, dude just pulled up with Eminem, and now he's rocking Jonathan Groff from Hamilton Soundtrack. Okay, and Alexander Hamilton, who Hamilton is based out on, is this hit Broadway production right now. And yes, I do listen to soundtracks from Broadway plays sometimes. I love music. I'm really eclectic. You're probably figuring that out anyways. Um, and so we're having this interchange. But what I love about that specific song that was really awkward um, is this idea that King George, right, throughout the play serves as this comic relief, um, that most of the play is pr predominantly hip-hop and R&B, and it's kind of driven on the storyline of what's happening from Alexander, Alexander Hamilton's kind of arrival in America, birth, arrival, 
and until his subsequent death in the duel with Aaron Burr, right? And, um, but this King George figure kind of steps in, and he uses that kind of upbeat, very different style musically from the rest of the play. And he, he makes this line about, and I don't know if you probably heard it when I was um, just kind of talking, but that King George is like, wait, George Washington stepping down? Like, that can't be. Who does that? You see, that moment um, that's actually captured in a famous painting that you can see in the Smithsonian called the Lansdowne um, Portrait, that that painting, um, King George could not believe that George Washington had turned down essentially another monarchy. You see, when George Washington um, took over Continental um, the Continental Army, uh, there was a lot of calls, especially in lieu of the victory um, and Britain's kind of surrender, to become the next king, the, to become the king of the American colonies. And he turns down this call to be king, and he instead steps into this thing called the presidency, which at the time was a fairly revolutionary idea, right? What was insane that we can't appreciate today unless you go back to the history and that's why this painting captures it is this painting is on is commemorating the day and the moment that he turned down the re-election for the third time where he said no as the as the president i'm setting a precedent and i'm only going to serve for eight years i'm actually going to retire and go back to mount vernon and continue to farm and that simple decision by our first president set the precedent that every single president has followed with two full terms. And I recognize for the historians in the room, there is that one guy who did 10 years, but that was amended so that can happen. But still, what George Washington did set a precedent for our nation. And it was this incredible moment that I think probably stands out in our nation's history of one of the greatest moments of humility in our greatest moments of history. To think, to turn down that much power and to go back to farming. Like humility is one of those interesting words that we respect it when we see it in others, but we're not really sure how to build it in ourselves. We'd all say we want to be humble, right? But we know instantly the moment that we have to tell people that we're humble, we're failing at it, right? If you're ever in the room and someone says, oh, I'm really humble, you're like, no, you're not. You're actually not at all. Or if I'm the most humblest person you've ever met. No, you're not. Right? That humility is this odd thing. We know it's a good thing. We know, in fact, it's a God thing because Jesus embodies humility. But how do we actually foster it in our own lives? And humility is this characteristic and this trait that I want us to spend the next 20, 25 minutes unpacking. Because humility doesn't have to be something we admire from a distance. It can be something that we act on regularly. That humility can be something that we foster in our lives. In fact, the person that I want us to push into is someone who was a king. That I want us to learn from a guy who writes a letter, who happens to be at the time one of the most powerful kings in the entire world. And it's one of those letters that maybe you've never read before, but its uniqueness is that this, this stands out as probably one of the most interesting chapters in all of the Bible. And so now you will have that little moment of next time someone's talking about a Bible, you can be like, hey, did you know about this chapter? And now you can sound really smart, right? Because that's what we're talking about, how to be humble. And so in Daniel, the book of Daniel, you have the storyline of a, a group of Jewish kids who are essentially exiled out of their nation. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, who's ruling the Babylonian Empire at the time, this is around 586 B.C., 
Okay, so this King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he conquers him, he takes the sharpest, the brightest, back to Babylon with him, and this is something I talked about a few weeks ago, and he, he essentially trains them to become Babylonians. They're not allowed to speak their language. In fact, if you, if you dug into the history, you'd find that during, it's during this time period that the Hebrews actually changed their alphabet because they literally forget it while in exile. They adopt what is now what is commonly called the Aramaic script, which is what you think Hebrew is, but at the time, Hebrew had a completely different alphabet. They had forgotten it. They weren't allowed to write it because the Babylonians were trying to stamp out the Jewishness about them. And so here they are in a foreign land, and the book of Daniel is kind of chronicling this storyline. But chapter 4 is the one I want to look at today. And chapter 4 is unique because all the other chapters bear the imprint of Daniel and his, his kind of biographical take or his, his kind of like observations of what's happening um, or the recordings of his visions. But chapter 4 stands out in that chapter 4 is a journal entry from King Nebuchadnezzar himself that's inserted in the book of Daniel and that's been forever kind of entrapped, enshrined as part of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's literally the, this pagan king who did not believe in the Jewish God as the one true God um, writes this journal entry about an experience he has where he learns to be humble. And it's in this letter that while it's 37 verses, we're not going to hit it all. I encourage you to go back and read it at some point. It's incredibly fascinating. And so if you have the Encounter Church app, I encourage you to go ahead and open it. Um, because what you find in chapter 4 is the beginning. With, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar. This is like an official decree from him. He says, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth. And the reason he can say that is because at the time, the Babylonian Empire was almost encompassing all of the known world for them at the time. The Babylonians were an incredibly great people. It's argued that of the seven ancient wonders that existed, that two of them were Babylonian. The Hanging Gardens and the Great Wall. The Great Wall, in fact, was, uh, it's been archaeologically kind of uncovered, and they can at least predict that it was 10 miles long, and it was wide enough for a four-horseman chariot to turn around in. So here's this massive wall that covers the entire city, this engineering feat that's still considered to be one of the greatest engineering feats for its day. And King Nebuchadnezzar sits above it all, and he writes to this proclamation, "'May you prosper greatly.'" It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in the bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So what you have is the beginning of this proclamation that we now call the book, chapter 4, the book of Daniel. And it's the writings of King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is one of those reasons I love um, Christianity, is that Christianity is a historical faith. It's rooted in history and historical events. It's not the, the feel-good aspirations of spiritual thoughts. This is God's march and movement throughout human history to call and redeem and draw a people to himself. And that... The fact that something as concrete as King Nebuchadnezzar and his writings are inserted in Daniel chapter 4. Because here's the thing. If you were trying to make up a religion, you probably should stay away from history. Right? Because that's an easy thing to test and to disprove. 
And so here's Nebuchadnezzar, and we know the time period he writes, because what happens out of this, um, there is only eight years in Nebuchadnezzar's reign where there is no major military campaign. Nebuchadnezzar, as a, as a king, would have also been a powerful military commander. And so the story that unfolds out of chapter 4 happens over the course of eight years. And it's one of those, like, just another one of those historical nuggets. See, um, if you're not a Christian and you're in this room today, we're not Christians because the Bible says so. We're Christians because a dead man who claimed to be God was put in a tomb. And then three days later, he walked out of that tomb. And by doing so, did something that no one else has ever done. And in doing that, gave authority that is, he and his resurrection is the reason we have confidence in the Bible. Because of that event, Christianity is rooted in an historical event. And here is another one of those kind of historical moments. This dream that Nebuchadnezzar has is so gripping to him that he literally assembles all of his cabinet and all of his wise kind of sages of his day. And he brings them in the room and he says, I've had this dream and it's different. It's not a, I drank a little bit too much last night, or I had a burrito when I shouldn't have last night. This is a, I think the gods are trying to speak to me kind of moment. And it's so disconcerting for him. He pulls all of these people together and they start to meet to discuss what in the world could this be? Because Nebuchadnezzar realizes there's something, I think someone somewhere is trying to tell me something. And the dream essentially goes like this over the course of verse 5 to around verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the dream and Daniel says, Oh, my king, that, it, that this dream was about your enemy. That this king's about you. Because in the dream, what happened is this great tree grows and like animals and birds, they're all like living in its safety. And then something happens and the tree falls. It's cut down. And all the animals scatter and the only thing left is a stump. And the stump is protected. And it, over the course of seven years, the stump is, is prevented from growing back. And Daniel says, King, that's, that tree, that's you. That God has pronounced a judgment over you. Because of how you've ruled and the oppression and the things that you've done that are wicked and evil, God's pronounced a judgment that for seven years, you're going to lose your right to rule. But if you turn, if you're willing to be humble, after those seven years, you'll be restored. And this crazy dream kind of rattles everyone. It rattles Daniel. But what we find is that it doesn't rattle Nebuchadnezzar as much as it should have. In verse 27, I'm going to pick up. So here's Daniel's kind of like passion out of this, this revelation that he's had about the dream. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So this hits King Nebuchadnezzar, and it doesn't stick. Daniel even warns him, like, King, let me go ahead and punctuate what the dream said to you. There's still hope. Get rid of the pride. The superiority where Nebuchadnezzar treated people like second-class citizens because he was the king. He was the Babylonian king. They were his servants and his slaves. 
And he oppressed individuals. And he did wicked, evil things that, that were sins against God. And he's like, look, you still have a chance. Turn from that. Stop doing it. And Nebuchadnezzar's 12 months goes by. No change. And in fact, it's not just this superiority that's marking him. This stubbornness for 12 months. Like, I would like to think, even though I'm probably not, I'd like to think if the God of the universe told me to do something, I'd, I'd figure it out in 12 months. Like, if the IRS sent me a letter saying, you've got to pay this in three months, I'm pretty sure I'd get on that, right? Like, you would too. And so here's something a little bit greater than the IRS, and by a little bit, I mean a whole lot. The God of the universe saying, fix these two things. Can you work them out? And Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'll get to it. He's He's stubborn. He's, he's your four-year-old or your 13-year-old who's digging their heels in the ground saying, nope, not going to do it. And the harder you press, the harder they push in. And it's the stubbornness. You see, what Nebuchadnezzar is demonstrating for us and this first challenge for us fostering humility is pride. Nebuchadnezzar has a ton of it. He's stubborn. He's got a superiority complex. He thinks he's better than everyone else. He doesn't think he has to answer to anyone. Sins, things I've done wrong, I don't answer to you. I'm above it all. There's no accountability in his life. And in fact, I think it all comes to height when you see the last verse I read where he's standing above the Babylonian kind of empire and he's looking out from his palace. He's contented and prosperous, right? I mean, things are going really well. And he's looking at the Great Wall, and he's potentially looking at the Hanging Gardens, and he's looking at what some historians have written in ancient literature as one of the greatest cities in human history, that Babylon at the time was considered to be one of the greatest cities ever. And so he's looking over this great city, and you notice that he says, it's not the one I have built. I've done it. I've made it. My great, mighty power. I'm awesome, is what he's saying. Like, like if this guy could have taken a selfie... This would have been his Instagram feed, always. <laughs> me in front of my palace, tsh, me in front of my wall, tsh, right? I mean, that would have been like hashtag I'm awesome. I mean, that would have been his life. He thinks he's great. And in the midst of this self-made moment, the height of his pride, tragedy strikes. Now, what's interesting is this, this time period that we're now in right now of this portion of the year, if you're a sports fan, you love it. Right, because you've got NBA Finals, right, and they're pretty epic this year. Um, you've got Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, you've got College World Series, if you're a college baseball fan. Right, my alma mater's in the Super Regionals, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, you've got Red Sox playing decently well. We're beating the Yankees, which is like my definition of success. And, and, and then... Kind of internationally, what you have is the Euro Cup. If you're a soccer fan, then you know that the Euro Cup starts this week. And, um, and so one of the, in kind of the interviews in preparation for the Euro Cup coming in, Sweden has one of kind of those superstars in um, European soccer, and it's a guy named Zlatan. Um, and I was trying to teach my daughter to say this, and I'm going to butcher it, but we almost had it. Ipr Ipr Nope, not even going to try. It's, it's Latin. That's all we're going to do. I'll say it after at starting point if you swing by because I'll be able to do it without the pressure. Um, so Zlatan's being interviewed. And Zlatan's a phenomenal soccer player. Okay? Um, like, 
incredibly, extraordinarily gifted as a striker, um, kind of the guy who puts the, the ball in the net. And so he's being interviewed this week, and he's the guy who says things like this, the World Cup's not worth watching if I'm not playing in it. Like, he's one of those kind of guys. And so this week he was being interviewed, and they asked him, hey, um, what were you going to get, what are you getting your wife for her birthday this week? And he, he says, nothing. She, she already has me. And you're like, hmm, dude, it's not even okay to think it, but you can get by thinking it as long as you never act on it, right? And he's like, she's got me. And you're like, no, horrible. And then they're like, um, and in fact, actually, what he really says is nothing. She already has Zoltan. He uses his name in third person. Like, who does that? And he's like, Psh, she already has Zoltan. Like, that guy. And he's like, so how, he's, he, he kind of pivots to these questions about him playing. He said, how do you feel like you're playing this year? What, how would you rate yourself on a score of 1 to 10? And he's like, hmm, 11. The guy's like, oh, I said 1 to 10. Okay. He said, and as a person, 20 out of 10. And you're just like watching it like, oh my goodness, that guy really believes everything he's saying. And it's really easy when you're watching that or even when you read about Nebuchadnezzar to see the pride, right? But see, here's the challenge. Here's why pride is the hindrance to developing humility is because pride is like carbon monoxide. You typically don't know it's present when it's around you, right? You see it on everyone else. It's really easy to spot when Zoltan's like, nothing, she already has me. It's really hard to miss when you look at your wife and you refuse to admit you're wrong. And see, this is the thing that was pressing in to Nebuchadnezzar. He spent an entire year because he's like, I'm not prideful. I'm just awesome. And there's a difference. And he really believes it. I, I, I read a, a writer earlier this week, and I thought he captured it well. He's like, pride is like the Petri dish in which, in which all the other brokenness of humanity grows that it's 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 not that pride's just this one sin it's the petri dish in which all the other sins come out of and i was like that's it like pride really is at the root and the base of so many of the broken things in our lives and the brokenness that we cause in our lives pride is the reason we overparent, right when our kid isn't making the grade we think they should and they're like you you have our last name like, you, you're reflecting us. You need to do better. You need to work harder. Pride's the reason you've seen parents overcoach their kids on the field. That's okay. That dude can't hit the ball to save his life. But my son, my son better know how to hit a baseball. Because he's got my name. He's representing me. Pride is the reason that when you're in that argument with your spouse, no matter how wrong you are, you can't say it. And you won't admit it. And instead of taking a step to do something about it, you double down on it. It's the reason that you stay committed to decisions that you know you should have changed your mind on a long time ago. Pride's what keeps you rooted in, in dark, stupid places. Pride's the reason that oftentimes... It's in public when we get the most angriest, the, I'm going to, yeah, most angriest, we'll make that up, with our child because they're choosing to act out. And it has nothing to do with a discipline problem. It has everything to do with the fact they're embarrassing you. And we have a tendency, don't we, in those moments to over-discipline 
out of anger. Not because they need discipline, which they do. We're doing it because they're embarrassing us. And people are watching. And you can see it, right? You can see it hit the parent when they realize, oh my goodness, everyone at Wegmans realizes my child is crazy. <laughs> and they think I'm crazy too. They're blaming it on me. And all of a sudden, we, we press into that. And it's pride. Pride is that Petri dish in which all the other brokenness it's pride is the reason terrorism happens. Because a group of people feel superior to another group of people, so superior, in fact, that they can take their lives and it's okay. I mean, pride is this nasty, insidious thing that creeps in, not just to everyone else's life, but in our lives too. And that's why it's really easy to see it in other people, but we miss it because at the end of the day, pride, what it's really good at is self-justifying. The reason you're not wrong is because she's wrong or he's wrong or your boss is an idiot, right? It's, it's really easy. Your parents just don't get it. All these self-justifying reasons, it's their problem. It's the circumstances. It's not your problem. You didn't do anything wrong. And pride is constantly saying, you're okay. You did it right. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar spends a whole year in denial of what God says to him. And the reason I'm pressing into pride, even in the midst of a conversation around humility, is that we can't see humility fostered in our life unless we come to realize that, first of all, its biggest barrier is pride and its presence in our life. And that if we're willing to become aware of the pride, then we're in the position to do what Nebuchadnezzar does next which not just is recognizing the pride, but is in a simple glance, right? In verse 31, kind of picking up on the story. Even as the words were on his lips, right? You see this command, this God's like, you did it. And Nebuchadnezzar's ushered out and says, your royal authority has been taken away from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and he ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his hairs like the claws of a bird. So Nebuchadnezzar steps in to what is seven years of just straight-up craziness. He's not bathing. Um, Babylon is an, an incredibly intense environment to live in. High humidity, the, the highs in the summer can be 110 to 120 because Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Okay, in the wintertime, as, as hot as you think Babylon is, or modern-day Iraq, in the wintertime, it typically drops below freezing. And so it's a harsh place to live, and Nebuchadnezzar's living in it. Um, actually, what he's demonstrating, where it says that he's eating grass like an ox, his hair starts to grow out and gets matted, his, his, his fingernails have grown out so long they look like claws. Um, there's actually a rare mental disease that um, he's reflecting. It's called boanthropism. And it's where, if you like Latin words and you like breaking them down, bo for bovine. It's where people think they're cows. And, and so some historians believe that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in response to the seven years of this blank record that we have of his rule and reign, where there's no military campaigns, where he just simply disappears, is that he has been inflicted with boanthropism, and he's wandering around living and thinking he's a cow. 
completely disconnected. Like, here's a guy who was the king of the greatest empire on planet Earth, and now he's eating grass and mooing at people. Right? But the powerful part is right here. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I... Notice the word I, because this is Nebuchadnezzar writing it himself. Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the king are, are the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the powers of the people. No one can hold him, can hold back his hand and say to him, what have you done? So what you see in this moment is Nebuchadnezzar, who has been living with this powerful pride, has this very deeply humiliating and humbling moment. And in the midst of that moment, he makes a very simple gesture, right? And you notice it says that he looks up to heaven. It's a very simple gesture, but that gesture is loaded because what that gesture reflects is an acknowledgement of some things. See, Nebuchadnezzar had always been the self-made man. He built Babylon with his own hands and power and authority and wisdom and now he looks up to heaven and says, it's your dominion. You put whoever you want in charge. It wasn't me. It was you. He makes these acknowledgments that born out of reality that heaven rules and he doesn't. There's this humility that creeps in where he says, you know what? I'm accountable. I'm not above it. Because God, you, you spoke a word and look where I am. That I will pass away, but it's your kingdom that keeps going on and forever and forever. And he starts making these like very, this, this simple gesture is a reflection of what's happening inside of his heart where humility is starting to creep into its darkest places and bringing and shedding light. In fact, I think this is one of those profound truths that just living in light of the fact that we are the humans, so if you do, if you kind of dig into the etymological roots, like where these words come from, what you'll find is that um, humility, humiliation, human, they all have some same origins, and it comes from the ground. That humility is about getting as close as you can to the ground, because guess what? When you fall, it doesn't hurt a lot when you're already there. Falling only hurts when you're really high up. And humility is about being aware of your position in light of God. And I've, I believe, in fact, God wanting to make this point did it beautifully well with something that almost every, every one of us have witnessed a toddler discovering it called our belly button. Right? I think our belly button is a reminder to us that we are not self-made. Because every time you bathe yourself or every time you're around a small child, it's like, what in the world is this thing? This doesn't make sense, right? And you can see it. They're like, all the other holes seem to have a purpose, but this one. And this hole has a purpose too. It's to remind us that we didn't make ourselves. We didn't determine when we stepped into this earth. In fact, the only two dates that typically will ever be remembered about anyone's life, the one that gets written in stone that lasts forever, are the two dates that most of us have no control over, when we came into this world and when we leave. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is realizing. He's like, I'm a man with a belly button. I, 
I didn't have it all figured out, and I'm going to die one day. I mean, it's not that profound, but that's profound. And that's what he, it hits him with. And I think God stamped it in all of us as a reminder on our days where we think we're the greatest thing ever. We still got a belly button. And when we meet people that we don't understand and we don't like, we're reminded they've got a belly button. That we're all humanity. And that in the midst of that humanity, that we, understanding who we are, should foster humility. There's this brilliant quote I came across um, a couple weeks ago that said that as the island of our knowledge grows, so does the shoreline of our ignorance. And I think this is what Nebuchadnezzar has, that Nebuchadnezzar walks in thinking he has it all figured out, and then God kind of blows his mind and says, no, I'm God. And his island of knowledge greatly expands because now he's aware of a God whose power is great. But as the island of our knowledge grows, so does that shoreline of ignorance. There is more beach in what we don't know than there ever was before. That's why the more you learn, it should produce greater humility. Because the more you see, the more you realize you don't see. And Nebuchadnezzar models that for us, that humility is born out of a recognition that we don't have it all figured out. We didn't even plan how we got here. We didn't have, nobody came to us and said, hey, do you, do you want to step into this thing called planet Earth? Nope, no one asked. We were thrust into it. And then we have to figure it out. We have to learn. And the more we learn, the more we learn we don't know. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is he comments coming out how people come back to him and how he's reestablished in his throne. And what I think Nebuchadnezzar paints for us is the, the fact that when you're humble, you realize you, you're under accountability. You have to answer to someone. I remember being a teenager thinking, I can't wait to be an adult because then no one is going to tell me what to do. And then I realized when I become an adult, there's far more people telling me what to do now than there ever was when I was a kid. Right? That there's, you, you never, ever get to a point where you're above a, accountability. And if you are in a place like that now, it's not real. You've made it up. And you need to run from it. Because it's got your demise hidden inside of it. If you think no one's going to find out about that affair or any, no one's going to find out how you're stealing money from the government, like that's always bad when we're in those places. That we have to recognize humility is born out of realizing I'm accountable to someone. And humility gives us an ability to acknowledge our mistakes. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does, isn't it? He looks up to heaven, and by doing so, he acknowledges his mistake. He says, God, I'm sorry. And the three phrases that could revolutionize some of our lives would be simply stopping where we are, looking at the, the person who we love, whether it's a spouse or a sibling that we haven't talked to in years because of some past issue, or whether it's our kid who we're growing more and more and more dis, dis kind of distant from, and saying to them, I am sorry. Please forgive me. I was wrong. Most of us don't like to say those three phrases, but those three phrases are life-changing. And when you realize, I've got a belly button, I don't have this thing figured out, I was wrong, those are three words that can change your life. But most of us don't like to say them. We don't like admitting when we're wrong. We like to change the subject when we figure out they know that we're wrong, but we don't want to admit it to ourselves. And Nebuchadnezzar's example is acknowledge you're wrong. Look them in their eyes and ask for forgiveness. 
Because humility is powerful. It's not just that humility in us is powerful. It's that humility's impact on us and our relationships can be powerful too. That if you notice how he ends the chapter in 36, 37, at the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor was returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and the nobles, they sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. But if you notice, it was just a simple glance to heaven. And what he found was that that simple looking to heaven, he discovered that God was already there, ready to return the exchange and that glance back. That humility paves the way for healing. That some of us have seen and witnessed relationships destroyed by pride because neither one of them could admit they were wrong. And there's something beautiful about acknowledging the fact that both of you are broken and both of you are imperfect. And that you did not marry the perfect one and they did not marry the perfect one. And if you thought that when the day you said yes, the next day you figured out you were wrong. Right? Because... So let's stop acting like we're perfect and acknowledge the wrongs because humility's power is that it paves the way for healing. Healing with our kids, healing with our coworkers, healing with our spouse. But do you notice it's so powerful, it's even the first step in finding healing with God. That some of us can feel so distant and so disconnected from God and thinking, I've done so many things. How could he ever care about me, love me, or want a relationship with me. And humility, our one step in humility to look up to heaven, to acknowledge that we were wrong, and we'll find that God's already there present with us. Humility paves the way for healing. Healing in you, healing in your relationships, and healing with the one who made you and who loves you. That it has power. I I started off with talking about George Washington. And here's how I want to leave you. So the picture painting of George Washington I gave you um, is the day that he turns down his opportunity to become the president for the third time. And the painter wanted to capture the power of that moment. And so the painter did something that's pretty unique, that George Washington's probably one of the most prolific characters of um, early America. He was painted over 25,000 times. Right? You think about that. Like not, I mean, that's 25,000 selfies done with paintbrushes. That's incredible. But only three of them had something unique about them. Only three of those 25,000 paintings had a symbolic gesture and an image to capture the hope that America had. In fact, when the painter painted this painting, he put something in the corner that probably none of you noticed when you first saw this painting. He wanted to capture the idea that the storm clouds of the revolution had parted, that the storm had passed, and all that was in the wake was this rainbow where the storm is gone, and we're getting ready to move now into this bright, bright future of this early nation because of the humility demonstrated by America's first and greatest general and first and greatest president. And what I love about this painting, and even the fact that that was painted in the corner, is that it's a great 
illustration for how you and I today can start to move towards humility. Start to become aware of the pride. It's there. Start to find it in our own lives. Now that you've seen that rainbow, the next time you're at the Smithsonian with someone who wasn't here today, and you just happen to be, oh, oh, that's the Lansdowne painting of George Washington. Fascinating. You know that there are 25,000 paintings of George Washington? Most prolific, most prolific subject of any painter in uh, early American history, just saying, you know. Oh, did you notice that in the corner? I bet you didn't, because most people don't. That, that rainbow, only three of them in all of his paintings, because it symbolizes the bright future of America because the storm has passed of the revolution. And they're going to say, wow, you're really smart. And you're like, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> it's true. I'm humble, too. <laughs> but when we become aware of the pride, we can do something about it. And we have a choice in the moment when we see pride to be able to look into the eyes of the people that we know and care about and even into the very heart of God himself and to acknowledge that we were wrong and to ask for forgiveness and to start to see a relationship repaired. And so some of us, I know that where you find yourself right now in your relationship is far heavier and far scarier than you'd ever imagined. But I'm telling you that humility has the power to make a difference. It can build a great marriage. It can restore a relationship with your child or sibling or even a distant parent. And that humility has a way of reshaping you and making you a pleasant person to be around and to change your, your work environment. And it has so much power that it can even change your entire life and your future with the God who created you.